We praise you for that, and we come to receive your wisdom. We come to receive your life. We come to discover you in these scriptures made alive by your Holy Spirit. We come to be united with you so that we might receive your faithfulness and become faithful ourselves. We pray that you would have mercy on us. Speak to us. Open our ears and our hearts and our minds for your glory and to our good. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So I'd like to begin this morning uh, with a quote from Hans Urs von Balthasar, a 20th century Roman Catholic theologian who um, maintained a pretty, pretty close dialogue with Karl um, Barth, Protestant, Reformed, 20th century theologian. Uh, these are two of the probably most preeminent theologians of that century. And this quote has to do with how we read the Bible, and we're coming in today concluding our journey through Luke's travelogue, chapters 9 through 19, in the center of the Gospel of Luke. And so part of what we can do is say, okay, what, what can we do with this? What are we taking away from this? How are we reading this? How are we understanding this? And I hope, uh, maybe through the course of this sermon, you can take away some, something to know, for sure, in your heart, and then something also to do. And I think von Balthasar helps us uh, begin this conversation. So here's what he has to say about the scriptures. He says, all external scenes of Jesus' life and sufferings, so, so everything that we've been seeing, everything we've been tracing out as we've gone through chapters 9 through 19, seeing Jesus healing and teaching and preaching and um, uh, meeting and journeying, all these things, all these external scenes of Jesus' life and sufferings, are to be understood as a direct revelation of the interior life and intentions of God. Does that make sense? So when we see Jesus, we see God's attitudes towards us, um, who God is for us, what God wants us to know. Jesus reveals, he's a direct revelation of these things. He continues, this is the fundamental meaning of biblical symbolism and allegory without which the whole gospel remains nothing but superficial moralism. If there's no salvific saving character to the content of Christ's revelation, then he's really, then it really just becomes, hey, this is good and that's bad. And you should try to do good more. It becomes superficial. There's no salvific character to that. Thus, for instance, Jesus silenced before Caiaphas. Here's an external representation. Uh, the Eke Homo episode with Pilate, uh, Behold the Man. Uh, the figure of the Lord covered with the cloak and flogged, his nailing to the cross, the piercing of his heart, his words on the cross, and so on. All of this is a direct portrayal and exegesis of God, a critical reading that reveals the truth inherent. All of this is a direct portrayal of God accessible to the senses. Let that sink in a minute. It takes a little bit of thought. Um, that's, what, that's why I handed out some coffee mugs at the beginning so that a little caffeine would help people not sleep through the sermon. When we see Jesus, he shows us, he, he, he displays for us, he portrays for us in a way accessible to our senses because he's a human being with us in the world, who God is, his intentions, his interior life. He puts that on display for us. And I, I hope that carrying that in your mind is going to help you understand and see the, the meaning of the passage today a little more clearly. Maybe it'll make a little, little greater difference to you as you hear it. 
Uh, so we're in Luke chapter 19. And, um, you know, Jesus has been in this 10 chapter narrative that we've been traveling. You know, he left Galilee, the home, comfortable place. He's moving through and in between Samaria and Galilee on his way to Jerusalem. We've drawn lots of connections about how that fits in the story of the cosmos, uh, the story of Israel, the story of the church, your, your personal story. We leave home, we make a difficult journey that God, where God accompanies us and we move towards victory, won by Christ. And so today we see Jesus coming to a completion of the space between. Now, aren't we all ready for that to be over with as it, you know, points to a pandemic? He's come to the end of that. He's on the brink of this next stage, the crisis of his life, uh, the crucial moment. The, the, indeed, the, the, um, the crux of the world is going to turn on what happens as he enters Jerusalem, the city of peace is what it means. And he's, he comes to the edge of Jerusalem. And in this familiar story, we're not going to get into it, but you know, Jesus sends a couple of disciples up ahead and says, you're going to see a donkey and a colt tied up and bring them to me. And if the owner says anything to you, say in return, the Lord has need of it. And so all these things happen. Jesus sits upon the donkey. He comes down the Mount of Olives and he's entering, he's the process of entering into the city. And what are people doing? They're waving palm branches. They're laying them down, um, laying down their cloaks, cloaks on their backs, symbols of their very lives down before Jesus so that the donkey upon which he rides uh, will not have to put its feet on bare ground. They, they, they honor Jesus. Indeed, it's a royal entrance, right? Um, Jesus is the king who enters the city of God, the city of David, the king to whom was promised a descendant who would sit upon the throne for all eternity. Jesus is entering this, announces, announcing his kingship, but displaying as he rides upon this donkey, that he is a king who comes in peace. He comes in humility, that he comes in love. So Jesus engages in this symbolic action. An outward, here it is, an outward external action that reveals the heart of God. See how that works? Jesus rides the donkey and is a symbol of humility and peace. This is what kind of a king God is for us. And then what happens next, and this is where we're coming to, Jesus reaches a point at which he can overlook the whole city. He sees the whole city of Jerusalem laid out before him. Can you see it? Can you see him there, solitary figure, gazing out upon the place where the crisis and the climax of his life and all of world history will come to completion? From chapter 9, he has set his face towards Jerusalem. He knows this is coming. He's almost to that point. The text says that he weeps over Jerusalem. We're going to get into what that might mean. But first, I want you to listen carefully and listen well. Luke chapter 19, verses 41 to 44. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, I think he means Jerusalem, city of peace, would that you, even you, city of peace, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground. You and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Jesus stands on the brink. He stands at the threshold. 
He's completed the difficult journey and he comes to the great crisis. He pauses for a moment, catches his breath, looks out upon the city, and he weeps. Now, there's a couple places in the Bible where we hear of Jesus weeping. Uh, Hebrews makes mention of this, that Jesus would, would often weep during his prayers throughout the course of his life. Um, the monks of the church will talk about receiving the gift of tears in your prayer. It's sort of a connection here. Um, so Jesus weeps as he prays. We learn this about his life. But, but probably the most famous instance of Christ weeping comes to us in the story of Lazarus. You remember how Jesus uh, was out teaching, healing, traveling? He gets word from Mary and Martha, a couple of his friends, that his friend, Lazarus, was not doing well. He was sick. He was on the verge of death. Would Jesus come quickly so that he might heal him and make him well? Jesus has been doing this for everyone, right? But Jesus delays, and he gets there a couple of days late, and Lazarus has died, and he gets there, and Mary and Martha are grieving. They are weeping. They are distraught. They're frustrated, too. Why did you... Why did you, you let this happen? And Jesus sees their grief and he comes to the tomb and he stands before the tomb. Shortest verse in the Bible, right? Jesus wept. And the people who saw him doing this, right? Here's the, here's the external event that reveals the interior heart of God and tension of God. The people who saw Jesus weeping understood it and said, ah, look how much he loved him. So when we see Jesus weeping again, maybe there's a connection there for us. Maybe Luke is drawing us to the love of Jesus, just why he weeps. There's a couple places, too, where Jesus speaks about Jerusalem itself. There's a place in Luke chapter 13, as we've moved through this um, travel log, where Jesus is in a town and he gets word that some folks are coming to him in order to do away with him. And so he gets a warning, he gets a heads up, and he says something to the effect of, oh, that a prophet, it's not good for a prophet to die outside of Jerusalem, so I'm going to make my way. And he says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who killed the prophets. So there's some grief there that in the city of peace, Jerusalem, there's this accompanying theme of death and violence, particularly and specifically against the prophets of God, which in turn is a form of violence, right? Violent response and rejection of God. So Jesus grieves that in Luke chapter 13, but now, now he stands solitary alone, gazing out upon the city, and he weeps again. And so all these things come rushing towards us. The love that he had displayed for Lazarus as he wept. Uh, his past grieving of Jerusalem and its sinful history. But now, did you catch what, why the text said that Jesus was weeping here? I, I assumed it would be because he's going to the cross and he knows what's before him and the great suffering, the great trial stands ahead but it's not that he weeps because he foresees as he looks out over the city it's downfall and destruction which actually comes to pass 70 AD you know the empire comes and lays the city down to the ground and knocks down the temple and and there it is but again Jesus is not looking at himself here is he it's amazing in the midst of trial in the midst of this hard journey in the midst of the crisis of his life which stands before him who's he thinking about us so he stands at this critical juncture, I think, with a heart full of love and compassion, grieving the past sin of Jerusalem, you who killed the prophets, and grieving also the prospects of future suffering. Which is really interesting to me, because our country does the same thing right now. We stand at a critical juncture, 
there are two big narratives ongoing, one of which has to do with a country that is called the home of the free and yet has a history of slavery and everyone's trying to figure out what do we do with that? How do we grieve that appropriately? On the other hand, so there's grieving past sin. On the other hand, we're also grieving future suffering because we see a death toll and we also anticipate more deaths to come. And even as we grieve the prospect of future death and future suffering, we also grieve the prospect of our own future suffering. How many conversations have you had about, my goodness, we have months left of this kind of stuff? Maybe you're grieving your own suffering, which looks like loneliness or isolation or separation from other people. I don't know what you're grieving, but we're all, in some sense, we stand at this interesting moment where we have sort of the high vantage. We're coming through a difficult period and we're grieving, in, in many ways, the past. And we're also grieving the prospect of future suffering. And so what I want you to see right here is that this is, the, this is kind of, this is that biblical symbolism again coming to play like von Balthasar is talking about. Jesus comes and meets us precisely in these things that we experience. He meets us right in the middle of them. So what I want you to see this morning is Christ's compassion. He's not thinking about himself as he goes to the cross. He's thinking about you. He's thinking about us. He's thinking about humanity at each other's throats. And he grieves, he weeps. If that, in fact, is something over which Christ would cry, revealing his love, revealing his compassion, perhaps it is something that we might ponder. Here's a way forward. Um, I think that this is the central core of the message that we have been tracing out each of these 10 weeks. The compassion of Jesus. Compassion means suffer with. Calm is with. Passion to suffer Jesus is willing to suffer with us. Why? Because he loves us. In Luke chapter 9, set his face towards Jerusalem, knowing what was ahead of him. And what did he say? Do you remember this? Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests. The Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He knew the journey he was embarking on was going to be difficult, challenging, hard. He moved towards the suffering, not away from it. In fact, he, God in the Eternal Son of the Father takes on flesh. The Word becomes flesh in Jesus. I mean, there's a picture of God moving towards our suffering with a compassionate heart full of love. Jesus moves towards the suffering. The next story we get is a story of the Good Samaritan. Is that not a perfect example of someone moving towards suffering and taking, entering into it? The Good Samaritan sees the man who lies in the ditch, broken, bleeding, dying, has been robbed, and he moves towards him. Even though the Samaritan was moving through Jewish territory, he didn't like the religious people walk around the one suffering and move towards him and engage with it and took the man in his arms and carried him to a room and set a table before him and paid his, his way, paid his debt, put his money where his mouth was. It wasn't just a feeling he had, but it moved towards action. In the same way Jesus sees us, maybe right where you are right now, feeling beaten up, feeling robbed of... Uh, opportunity to do what you want to do, feeling robbed of uh, various forms of engagement with other people, maybe feeling robbed of your health. All of us are dying. Some of us just a little slower than others, right? Jesus sees us. He doesn't walk around us, but he comes to us and he takes us in his arms and carries us like the good shepherd who sought out the one lost sheep and carried it back so that there might be great rejoicing in heaven and on earth. And he carries us and he sets us up in a room with a table set before us pays our debts and promises to come again. Jesus moves towards the suffering. We saw it again when he came to the synagogue 
And there was a woman there who was bent in on herself. She'd had a disabling spirit for 18 years. And he sees her. And when he sees the suffering, he doesn't shrink from it. He doesn't turn away from it. He calls her name. And she comes to him and he doesn't hold back. He lays his hand upon her and says, you are free from your disability. And she who was turned in on herself now stands straight and celebrates with God's people in worship. And in the same way, Jesus sees us. We're turned in on ourselves and he calls us by name and he lays his hand upon us and he straightens us out so that we are no longer a distorted image of the God in whose image we are made, but we are growing in the likeness of Jesus who reveals to us the interior life of God. Jesus moves towards the suffering. He calls us by name. He moves towards the suffering. He hears when we call. The ten lepers standing at the crossroads of their lives, flesh riding away, wearing masks, carrying contagion. Cry out, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. Does Jesus shrink back? Does he turn away? No, he moves towards the suffering. He moves towards the contagion. He says, go show yourselves to the priest. And as they go, they are healed. Over and over and over again, we see Jesus' compassionate heart. We see the compassionate heart of God. We see God's love on display as he moves towards our suffering and enters into it. And certainly the climax of that comes as Jesus walks down off this hill and into the city of Jerusalem and stands trial before uh, religious priests and stands trial before Roman governors and stands trial before the world, the innocent one. And Pilate says, behold, the man. The truly human one. This is what it looks like. And Jesus takes his, our suffering upon himself. Faces the abandonment of all of his, all of his friends. Faces the uh, abandonment of the world. Feels the weight of our sin, your sin, all sin laid upon him. Goes to the cross, nails in his hands and feet. Dies. Do you get this yet? God loves you. What does God feel in his heart towards you? Compassion. He sees what you suffer and it grieves him. This is not how it was meant to be. He weeps for you and doesn't just sit back and cry, but he enters in and he does something about it. He enters into our suffering so that he might take it all into himself and so redeem it. Here's the compassionate heart of God for you on display. There's something to know. Here's something to do. Jesus didn't just stand up on the hill and cry and keep crying, right? Like he eventually did something about it. The same way that he sees the suffering of the world and does something about it. And what does he do? This is interesting to me. I think it's sort of a way forward. It might set a pattern out before us. Because we too stand and we see and grieve past sin and we too um, grieve future suffering. But, but what do we do? It seems like what most people want to do is opine about the solutions that come to our, you know, make most sense in our own minds. That's what we see on the news over and over. That's what we see on social media over and over. And what does that produce? Not a lot of good. What does Jesus do? Jesus goes to the temple. This is the very next thing he does after he weeps and grieves future sin. He goes to the temple and he casts out money changers. And he says, quoting scripture, my father's house will be a house of prayer. The first place Jesus goes is to the temple. Now, the temple in Israel, in Jerusalem, was the singular place where God had promised to meet with Israel. You got the tripart division of the temple, the Holy of Holies, where God comes, uh, takes 
his place and the power of the spirit upon the mercy seat. It's a space where the high priest goes in once a year and offers sacrifice and cleansing and so on. And of course, Jesus, Jesus himself replaces the temple. He's the dwelling place of God on earth. And then he sends the spirit such that the scriptures say that you and I are temples of the living God. Where does Jesus go first? He goes to the temple. And the temple, that is our bodies, the church has spoken of the heart as the Holy of Holies, the place where God comes and resides, the, the place where God meets with you and, and calls to you in the solitude and silence of your life. He beckons you from within your heart. Where does Jesus go first? He goes to the temple. The invitation here is maybe, maybe just maybe, before we go out and try to fix the world with our opinions, perhaps we first might heed this call and follow this example of Jesus to go to that interior place where we might first hear from God. Because what is Jesus going to do there? It appears to me that what Jesus does is he cleans it out. This does not mean before you can go to work in the world trying to set things right and work for the good of all, that you need to be perfect. That doesn't mean that. I don't think any of us are there. or not Many of us get there uh, in this life. It doesn't mean that. But I think the invitation is clear to first ask Jesus to deal with you so that in all your work out in the world, you can go in a posture of humility. Because what Jesus is doing is you is casting out all those things that don't belong so that you might bear the likeness of him. So that when you go, you go in humility as Jesus rides in on the donkey. So that when you go, you might come with a compassionate heart, which is willing to move towards the suffering. So that when you go, you might also, and here it comes full circle, you might also manifest the love of God in external action for the world to see. See how that works? Jesus comes and he manifests God's love to the world. That's what Von Balthazar said at the beginning. And now as he comes into your heart and transforms you, you are also going to be able to more clearly manifest the love of God in the world. Maybe not with opinions, but with a pursuit of a purity of heart that necessarily lends a pleasing aroma uh, to this place in which we find ourselves. Something to know. God loves you. Something to do. Enter into the temple, meet with Christ in that place and ask him what needs to be cleaned out in you so that you might be sent into the world in the likeness of him. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.